Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Hi, Russ. I'm doing great. How about you? Fine. It's been like 36 hours. No, 24 hours. No, 36 hours since we talked. It's a yeah. long time for yeah. Tom and I. You know, we yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty unusual for us not to go this long. And today we have Yvonne. What is up with that, Yvonne? Like three in a row? I know. It's amazing. <laughs> Don't jinx it, Russ. Come on. <laughs> I don't know what to do with myself. Maybe Everybody's vacationing. Off. I have fewer meetings right now. It's great. Oh, is that it? Is that it? It is. Yeah, it's good. summertime. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I never take vacations. I don't know. I was talking to my mom about coming to visit her. And she's like, well, I do have Wi-Fi so that you can check your email in the mornings. Because I remember that there hasn't been a day since you started in the IT industry that you don't check your emails in the morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> least i don't do it all day but you know i have to have at least like a half an hour to an hour to like clean out my inbox otherwise i come home to like five thousand emails and i'm like oh no i can't handle that so and today we are joined by sarah where are you sarah uh, i'm based out of the boston area i'm with hed or uh, architecture and engineering company um has been doing data center design for 20 plus years now Okay, so you're on the other side. You're not on the network side. You're on the power, infrastructure, all that kind of stuff, which is really cool because we network engineers don't often hear about that stuff. Yep, so we do all the design for the networking engineer's house, basically, right? So yeah. everything that, that you have interested in, we design the, the parts and pieces that go around it. So all you listeners out there are trying to figure out why they put the door in that place in the data center. <laughs> You can ask Sarah. <laughs> you, can, you can blame me. <laughs> it's like, I have this door between my kitchen and my living room, and I'm like, I can't figure out why that door is there. I just, I don't understand it. There's just a hole in the wall. I'm like, I don't get it. It's a weird thing. Yeah, there's there's some great <laughs> memes, like, memes on the internet of architect decisions, and why did they do it that way? <laughs> so the worst one I ever heard was, my uncle was on the board of the USS Constitution, and... Um, he said that one day they were measuring, they were just walking around and they noticed there was like this space and they were like these spaces, there was this space nobody could figure out. And so they actually measured it and they couldn't figure out what was going on. So the next time they were in port, they brought in a, a, a cutter, you know, a, a welding cutter or whatever, an oxy cutter, and they cut a hole in the wall and they discovered an entire room that had no doors. And it was a machine shop and it had all the machines in it, all the power, everything was in it. But there were no doors. They were like, we don't know how this happens. That's that's a crazy one. <laughs> so anyway. So today we are talking about power. And um, because power is an interesting topic, we don't talk about it a lot as network engineers. Like I said there earlier, you know, we don't live in that world a lot. And so it's really good to get people on and talk about like with the back end stuff. We had Carrie on a couple of, I don't know when this publishes compared to Carrie's talking about jobs in the data center and talking about um, electricians and electronics and stuff um, and the drive to get more people to work on that stuff. Because honestly, trades make the world go round and, and you know, if you don't have a house, you can't even put electricity in it. So what are you going to do? Um, 
So Carrie, I don't know. Let's start, I guess, with Sister, or Sarah. I have Carrie on the brain. I'm such a bad. Anyway, so no worries. <laughs> Carrie's amazing. <laughs> so um, Sarah, so um, you are. Let's start with sustainability because I think that's a big topic for everybody right now. And thinking about like, are data centers sustainable? We hear all this stuff about how much power they use, and I mean, I have a lot of questions in this area. Like, is bigger better or smaller better? All those kinds of questions. So. I guess just start with, with with some thoughts on sustainability and where things are. Yeah, and so I think um, unfortunately data centers have somewhat of a a misnomer on the sustainability front, right? Because fundamentally, as why they exist is to utilize power to create. You know, you can go watch Netflix on your phone, and you can uh, call an Uber instantaneously. All those different things that. Think a lot of people lose sight of very quickly you know there's a politician who somewhat recently came out about not wanting having data centers because all they do is bitcoin mining and it's like wow that's uh <laughs> that is incorrect <laughs> and so so it's just you know it's a little bit of an education thing when it comes to understanding that the data center industry fundamentally cares about sustainability right we are a huge power draw but that doesn't mean that that is due to the lack of creating efficient systems. Data centers inherently are very efficient because no one wants to pay for more power on something that is such a huge power consumption, right? Especially all the you know hyperscalers in the world, that's fun. We, you need to kind of cut costs so you can continue to grow your, yeah. your, your either your programs, what, what different um, services you provide, all those different things. Um, so inherently they are already, you know, pushing the boundary as a sector compared to some of the other sectors in the architecture and engineering world. Um, your comment on like bigger is better. There's also just, just in the thought of, you know, having cloud-based systems versus having an IT rack in the back of somebody's office that the, the efficiency of that rack and the efficiency of the power draw that that's using compared to a cloud-based server there's a there's a huge efficiency there and especially when you start looking at that on a massive scale you know it might only be a certain amount of kw or whatever on an individual office but globally that becomes a, a huge impact right so there's a lot of things that the data center industry is already doing the hyperscalers as a whole are some of the biggest companies that are pushing for um you know ai 2030 carbon neutral or carbon negative etc um, and there's a lot of ways that they're kind of doing all that, but um, it's it's somewhat of a, a conversation around education for people to know, hey, when you go on your phone and you're Googling something or you're watching a TV show through Hulu or whatever it is, you're part of the reason that this power consumption is happening. It's less about the building type itself. And while, like I said, there's plenty of things that are being done to continue to push the efficiency there, it's also just about educating the communities around their usage is what's driving these data centers to continue to grow and use that power consumption. So what are some of the techniques we can use? Like I know that I'm seeing a lot of people are very focused on real estate, putting data centers near power sources, which makes sense to me because you lose power in transmission. So if you can cut 50 miles out of the transmission link, you're that much more efficient kind of a thing. So that seems to me to be one example. Um, any others that people are doing right now that are really interesting or think you, th you might not think about, you know? 
there's two there's two benefits to that one in particular right it's like you said it's um not losing your power draw but it's also from a um not from a sustainability from a reliability standpoint you want to make sure that your your substation is as close as it can be to the data center so you're seeing more substations on site of your data center campuses for that reason because as we're all aware you know storms are storms are getting worse in some areas and making sure that you're uh, limiting the length between you know where a tree can come down versus where your data center is it's it's a pretty big factor for for that maintainability um but then also just big trends in the market um from the non-design side a lot of the hyperscalers work with developers on reliable energy sources or renewable energy sources so they'll you know help develop uh solar farms wind farms etc and they'll use that those credits back to the grid there is some limitation right now still on um storage right so they they may not lean on a solar farm to power their data center because they don't necessarily have the storage to keep that power to um continuously uh fuel their data center type of thing but um they're using that as a way to kind of balance out the emissions that they're utilizing and then um there's a lot of trends in the market of just you know as we move towards ai inherently there is some level of sustainability there because you're looking at higher density racks which is resulting in more power and more um like compute power in a smaller footprint than in previous years right so there is you know you could start looking at smaller data centers or is it the same size of data center but you're getting more it power out of that data center than you would previously and then additionally liquid cooling is something that i think probably six years time frame, you're gonna see a pretty significant shift. There's already a number of hyperscalers who are already heading in that direction, but um, bringing the cooling directly to the chip is a kind of, there's some limitations there, right? There's conversations around what does that mean from a power perspective, et cetera, but you are inherently bringing the cooling directly to the heat source. So there's efficiencies there compared to heating a, or cooling a room that is off putting the heat type of thing. It's one less transfer, basically, or it's a higher density transfer. Rather than transferring heat to air, air through an air cooler, like back into the environment, you can pull it directly into the water. Because basically a lot of cooling is you, you're actually not pulling it into another air pocket like outside. You're actually pulling it through a liquid of some type anyway, right? You're pulling it through, I don't know, a compressor, decompressor system or something that, you're, that gives you the cooling power that you're looking for. Or a... a what is it, that waterfall thing that they use? I can't remember the name of it. Um, the immersion uh, cooling yeah, stuff. Yeah, or something like that, yeah. but So, yeah, so it's actually more direct, which is interesting. Um, now, from a network side, and Tom, Yvonne, jump in anytime here. Like, I feel like I'm <laughs> hogging everything. Um, the From a network side, I know one thing that I've seen concerns about is the optics and that the optics are becoming so powerful or requiring so much power that they're actually requiring as much power as the processor on the router itself. And that produces a lot of heat, that the optics themselves in the sending and receiving are a lot of heat. And so I don't know if you have any thoughts around that area, but I know, you know, we tend to use high power lasers and then we just, we just put um, whatever they are, attenuators on them 
to drop the power down and you're like, well, the attenuator is just emitting heat. That's all it's doing. You know, it's just absorbing the heat and sending it out into the air. And so you're just taking a lot of power and shoving it into the air directly because you don't need that kind of power on your optics. So I don't know if there's anything around that area you looked at that might you might run into or might have run into. No. <laughs> okay. What um, about? I would oh, go ahead, Tom. Oh, I was just going to say I, I was thinking about um, this is many years ago. I I remember there was a lot of a lot of people were talking about how do we get the air to go where we needed to go. Um, this is a long time ago when it was, where do we put the cold aisle and the hot aisle and how do you situate the equipment? You've, you've talked about innovations in liquid cooling, but are, are we still, is anybody still investigating um, efficiencies around air cooling? Is there, are there any developments in that area? Um, when you say hot aisle, cold aisle, you're talking about containment or not yeah, containment. Yeah. Yeah. Containment and airflow and using airflow to right. Yeah. I would say that containment, it may not be the biggest, you know, um, game changer, but you are seeing, it's very rare that you're not seeing a push for that within a data hall at this point. Whereas, you know, five, 10 years ago, it was depending on the, the team who was, whether or not they thought it was worth it. So from a airflow perspective, that is kind of the biggest driver from the efficiency perspective, right? Is making sure that you try to bring the air directly to the racks and cooling directly at the racks instead of, again, cooling an entire room. Um, from air, like in general across the board, there's efficiencies that are happening, but it's not on, um, it's not on a massive trend perspective, right? Like it's just, you know, tweaking the units to get more efficiency out of them and that kind of stuff. Um, I wouldn't think that there's been a massive shift away from that. Um, again, liquid cooling is probably the biggest driver across cooling in general, and then, um, you know, a lot of the hyperscalers for a long time were using um, adiabatic. Um, so that was a massive um, water consumption, right? So there was, I remember it was like three point something billion liters utilized in 2022 or something like that. And so shifting away from that is probably the biggest trend you're seeing and that's part of where liquid cooling comes in, right? Is trying to come to a situation where you're you're having less water consumption and less draw on your utilities from that perspective. So what is uh, what what does adiabatic mean? I've never heard that word. Uh, a direct adiabatic system. Um, if I remember correctly, it's all evaporation based. So, and what that's saying is like you're not. It's on a closed loop system, so it's not a chilled water system where you're you just have the water in once. It's evaporating to cool the system, and so in doing so, you're you have a lot of waste right there. Yeah, yeah those evaporative powers is what I was thinking of before, right? Where they drop the water through the air, and it not only cleans the air, but it also cools the air because it evaporates the water, which consumes right. the heat. So, right, and they do have they do have closed systems for that, right? So. It can be um, it can be a, an efficient system when it when you're maintaining the resource, but when it's just becoming a a, a waste on it's the just going out of steam basically. You're sucking, right. sucking water in; it's going out of steam. Right. So, Yvonne, you were gonna. 
No, I was I was doing some reading as as we were talking uh, about adiabatic exodus systems and things like that. Um, I had a question and I should have written it down because I've lost it. Um, <laughs> I would I'd be interested to hear um, how you think um, power consumption in it, how it's trending. I know that um, with um, you know AI workloads and things like that, like there compute needs are just ever increasing right and and i know that um some data centers um are um are carbon neutral and are really committed to sustainability do, do you think that the the utilization that we're going to see coming in the next you know five to ten years with these new technologies with that we'll be able to maintain the kind of sustainability that we've got now or, or do you see challenges on the horizon for us to be able to do that um and you know, and, and are, are there new technologies coming to, to help with that as well? Um, I think what I mentioned before like with liquid cooling is going to be the thing that you watch um, for the trends in that, right? So uh, what you're mentioning is increase in the capacity at the rack level, right? So previously, um, you might be looking at 6 to 8 kW per rack. I've heard through talking through a couple different you know, um, multi-tenant data center providers that they're getting requests up to 300 kW per rack. That is a significant shift, right? Wow, that's and what, huge. Yes, it's huge. And so what does that look like? Is that, is it an end user just pushing the boundary and seeing what they get for response? Is it something that they're anticipating getting to a capacity level, you know, in three years time, six years time, 10 years time? What is What does that actually look like? Um, so I think there is some level of question there, but from a your question directly on, you know, what how do we keep the market moving in the right direction and maintaining that sustainability? I do think there are limitations. Um, I do think there's benefits inherently. I think it's it's again goes back to that whole um, perception situation, unfortunately, where you might have had a data hall in the past that was, I don't know, uh, 1600 kW, right? That was like five or so years ago now. Now you're going to be looking at significantly higher densities. So right now we're already up to probably around 10 megawatts per data hall in most multi-tenant data centers. There's It depends on the provider, right? But there's they've, they've made a significant shift. But if what we're hearing is accurate, there is even more coming, right, within that. And so you're going to be up against the, okay, there's a significant power draw here. What is the perception with that is, oh, well, you're not being efficient. But if you compare that to, and this is where we're going to have to get into kind of looking at this to different granularity. And personally, I have a lot of questions around it, but you start looking at, okay, well, if you used to be able to do a um, six megawatt data hall and 40,000 square feet, and now you're at a I don't know, 50 megawatt data hall in the same square footage. There is inherently some sustainability aspects with that because you're not building the same size of data hall. You have different equipment that are potentially providing that cooling. Is there, you know, positives and negatives within that? Probably. The other thing that I'm I'm curious on how these are going to go. There's a lot of conversations around utilizing nuclear power, using fuel cells, using different types of sources, right, within the Within the power generation industry, um, I do think nuclear is kind of we've we're seeing more push for it. Whether or not it's going to be fully 
um, adapted to in the next six plus years is going to be interesting because I think there's some level of hesitation around it, both from designers perspective, but also from, you know, the communities around them. And it's kind of funny because, you know, you have a nuclear plant right next to your house, but you don't want a data center next to that. So what's the, you know, how do you balance out those things? Um, but I do think that's an avenue for starting to look at how do you start powering these things and in, in uh, ways that are less draw on the actual utility grid, right? So there's a lot of things to consider within sustainability, unfortunately, right? It's a multifaceted uh, system. But I do think there's inherently ways that we'll be looking at more efficient systems. It's just going to be that perception, right? Because if you have a 300 kW rack, whereas that used to be, you know, four or five rows within a data center, you're, all, you're already becoming more efficient just by reduction in quantity of racks, reduction of quantity of fans within that rack, all those different things. There's yeah, a, there is a, there's there. a messaging there. Yeah. yeah you're but I just think less physical square footage of air. And yeah. I almost think if you're at that rate, you've got to be doing liquid cooling anyway. I don't think there's enough thermal density in air to cool a 300 kilowatt rack. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> that is the highest one I've heard. I'm going to be really curious to see where that goes and if it comes to fruition, because I think it is a, at least what I've heard, it's an end user bring going to a multi-tenant data center and saying like, hey, this is what we're provisioning. But how real that is, we'll see. Um, I also do think, you know, it's it's going to be dependent on the things that happen, right? Does uh, autonomous vehicles take off, right? If stuff like that starts really uh, becoming popular and um, more frequent, then you're going to start needing having edge data centers and you're going to need to have a lot more, you know, there's going to be a building next to you that you have no idea has a data center in it because it's supporting the Teslas that are all driving around type of thing. Yeah. So are the, are the utility providers keeping up with this demand for power? I hear 10 megawatts in a facility. It seems crazy. And, and if not, then who is, who is innovating, who is providing this giant Delta of power? So, um, there's been a shift in the market across the country right now because of that. Um, Ashburn, Virginia was a huge data center hub. It still is. It's still always going to be. Um, but they have a significant power problem right now. They've um, they've basically told a number of their, their companies who are saying, hey, I need power tomorrow, that you've got three years before we're going to be able to power that facility. Um, I think that timeline has been pulled in a little bit because they're trying to, you know, recover what there's companies saying, oh, we're going to go here. Okay, no, no, never mind. If you don't have power, we're going somewhere else. Um, but we're seeing more of that across the country where you're seeing limitations in power. So that is kind of where I start going, all right, well, when does nuclear become or all these different types of, of power? How, when do they become more um, viable? When do people start going, okay. Maybe we should look into this and, and have that kind of shift in the market. Um, it is right now kind of just pushing to some of the secondary markets. So Phoenix has had a huge boom. They were already probably start walking the line of second to first tier market. Um, but now I, they would definitely be first tier. And then like uh, Albany, um, Ohio, that's booming type of thing. So there's just different areas of the country that are starting to grow exponentially because of Ashburn's um, current power issues. Yeah. 
What is funny is as network engineers, we we often um, really deeply understand the challenges of, of limited connectivity in an area. And I've talked to all kinds of customers who are like, you know, geographically, this location makes sense for us, but there's just not enough tier one connectivity there for us to be able to function at the level that we need to function. And and what I'm hearing from Sarah is that it's, it's not just connectivity that's going to be our rate limiting factor. It's going to be the density of power available in certain geographies, especially, you know, if anybody's toured a data center in Ashburn, Virginia, um, it's 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 just massive. Um, so, some labeled, some not labeled, some for public vi- the, the public can visit, some that they can't. You know, it's 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 a phenomenal hub, and so I I wonder if some of those kinds of limitations are going to push further decentralization because we know that there's that pendulum that swings back between centralized and decentralized, and and I do wonder if if we are just geographically going to struggle to provide power to the point where we have to further decentralize. I I would say actually it's a better thing if we do, because if you talk about like these small towns in Ohio, not necessarily small towns, but mid-sized towns that were used to be second tier markets. And now what's going to happen is, is as they build data centers there, because there's power, transit providers are going to have to go in and build links to support those data centers which then makes those smaller towns have better connectivity, which means you might get more crossings or passings in front of houses and businesses because you've already now you've got a hub, you've got a connectivity hub. Why not connect to all the businesses in the local area? So decentralization may be a really good thing here. I don't know. Yeah. And I, I was actually, Ron, I have a question back for you. Is there, um, obviously there's Ashburn, right? But are there areas of the country that are, um, more beneficial from a networking perspective to build in. I would think Ashburn obviously won because of its connection over to Europe, but are there other areas that you're seeing or know of? Because I would be curious if those markets already are, are also going to be pushed towards, you know, top tier markets. Yeah, I mean, the, the ones I think of, and, and I'm sure Tom and, and Russ know these too, but, but Ashburn's first, but then there's Chicago. Um, there's Dallas and or Houston. Um, there's Salt Lake City. There's the West Coast, like Los Angeles. You know, you know, and, and then um, um, Iowa. Um, yeah. Any any place that you can yeah. pull out a map of trains. That's right. Uh, of train tracks, of existing mm-hmm. or old train tracks, and then you can figure out where there's a junction of three or four different lines you'll almost always have better connectivity there. And the main reason for that is because if you're if you're a transit carrier or you're a local carrier and you're trying to bury cable, it's almost impossible to cross fields. It's almost, I mean, you've got to talk to 100 farmers to cross the fields. You've got to talk to 100 homeowners, 100 different cities to cross a highway. But railroad tracks, the railroads own the, the right-of-way all the way down next to each track. So if you have good track coverage, you're golden for right-of-way, and you can actually build pretty good connectivity, fiber connectivity into the area. That's, that makes so much sense, and I never realized that before. I've looked at I've looked at the maps a few times just trying to understand because I've had tons of people ask me, why did Ashburn blow up the way that it is? And to me, it was always the kind of connectivity, and it was the if you build it, they will come model where mm-hmm. as soon as the connectivity was there, it just made sense. I mean, at the time, 
right now this isn't necessarily true, but it was low cost of land, low cost of power, et cetera. And so it just kind of boomed from there. Um, but part of the reason why I was asking that is there is, I was at a conference, I don't remember, I think towards the end of last year, and there was a theory about um, that edge computing isn't going to go the way that we've assumed, right? Everyone kind of assumed that it's going to need to be spread pretty significantly everywhere pretty quickly. And the theory was more that um, you're already seeing these markets boom with data centers across the country, that you're going to be slowly building the edge based off of the markets that already exist. So the markets that already exist are going to be the ones that are, you're going to see more of the like, you know, autonomous vehicles and all that kind of stuff start happening because they already have the infrastructure there, um, which I thought was kind of a a different way to look at it than what had been talked about in the industry. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to watch that trend. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. But like, if you look at, if, if you combine like um, the public cloud, you know, regions with say Equinix data center locations, and then you think about your major markets where you have big carriers, if you, if you overlay all that, like you're going to see, Um, some patterns emerge, uh, you know, where there are, you know, clusters of data centers and connectivity. And, and I do think like that, that's what, that's what you're going to see. I think what's going to be interesting is what happens in um, the Western part of the U.S. where there's literally nothing, (laughs) you know, there's, there's miles and miles and miles of uh, a very, very sparse connectivity and, um, very um, limited infrastructure um, and and will those you know are those markets going to be left behind or will there be investment made to 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 provide infrastructure because I don't know that the population density is going to support it economically right yeah yeah no Russ I, is I, shaking his head at me it's like no no hey, I'm no, not going to happen I mean this is part <laughs> of the B grants right now and you know right. I was thinking I was thinking about like I have a friend who worked for Cabela's for many years when uh, Sydney Nebraska was their headquarters. And he could not get internet internet access at his house. He just couldn't. He just like, it was impossible. And even DSL, even copper, nothing. So he literally went up on the 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 um, water tower, the Cabela's water tower, because they had their own water tower in Sydney, separate from the Sydney City water tower. And he put up a long directional Yagi antenna at the right frequency range for Wi-Fi five, for for Wi-Fi, and he sent it. He had a directional Wi-Fi signal to his house like 10 miles away so that he could get internet access in his house. Like, that's how bad it is. Like, that's crazy. And I don't know. I mean, the providers are pretty much abandoning copper in place right now. All the copper connections are gone. I mean, if you're not fiber to the curb, nobody's maintaining that copper and that copper is just rotting. Um, I don't know if you saw the story the other day, but... AT&T and Verizon, somebody just did a big story about all the lead-coated cables that are still being used for internet access. And, like, I took all that garbage out when I was in McGuire. We had lead-coated cables, and we pulled out miles of it. And so, I mean, all nobody's maintaining any of that stuff. Nobody's even pulling it out of the ground. They're just leaving it. And so, somebody got to pay to put fiber to the, at least to the curb, you know? And I don't know how that's going to happen. Well, what's interesting to me is we... we as technology evolves, we're always either we're always shifting the problem to a different stack of the technology because one evolves and then another has to evolve to meet it, yeah. right? And so there's a huge push right now for 
um, for broadband across the country. I've, I'm a beneficiary of that. I haven't had fiber until the last six months, and now I have fiber internet where I am. But but the interesting thing to think about is as that connectivity increases, are there going to be um, power demands now that we can't meet? I, I, I used to work for a small community, not work for them, but was associated with a small community hospital, and they were doing a huge data center upgrade. And the thing that shocked us all at the time, I was very early in my career, was that there wasn't power in that 50-year-old hospital to run the systems. And so there was a significant budget overrun because of the power, because we had to get more power into the building. Um, and, and that is often like we just think you flip the switch and the lights come on. But there's actual real infrastructure that makes that happen that uh, right. a lot of us just take for granted. Yeah, and I, I think that kind of like hits the nail on the head between your comment earlier about, you know, there's a lack of infrastructure and then you finally build infrastructure. But then the second, you know, what does that come with? Right. So you build the telecom, but now you need to build, you need to have more power, increase all that kind of stuff. That is going to be an interesting thing as um, the country changes, but also as the data center industry changes, right, where not like if Ashburn, Virginia has a PR problem with data centers, what is middle of nowhere, whatever, you know, a small town going to think of a data center. And if they want to, you know, continue to grow and um, maintain what the economy is changing, data center is very inherently built into that. And so how do you, as a, as an industry, how do we educate the communities around us to be able to, remove some of that bad press, right? Like, as I mentioned, it's a lot of it is comes down to views of it. And um, some of the things we were touching upon here of, you know, there is a certain level of, um, you know, a fiber gets abandoned and it, it gets left there. And there's unfortunately a certain level of waste across this entire industry. But at the same time, there's also been a significant push to avoiding that and trying to always be looking at the more cost effective, which inherently becomes a more sustainable approach in a lot of manners because you're reducing the resources you're leveraging to even just build this data center. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious what the, because I haven't been in, I just don't happen to have lived in places where data centers are being built currently. What are the common objections that people, that communities have to building a data center? I would think it's a quiet office building that nobody goes in and out of. I can't see that being that imposing but i but maybe that what are the objections that you've heard the two major ones are they're ugly and they're loud hmm. so the two i mean and uh for a lot of locations they are typically ugly because they're just concrete boxes right and but that's kind of what they want to be they want to be you know not too flashy in a lot of situations especially depending on what's in it they don't want to call attention to it um, they also don't want to spend the resources on a beautiful facade or glass because that is less efficient across the data center. You don't want a glass facade and be heating up your building. And <laughs> what you're all trying to do is just cool it, right? Um, so there's that, that is a battle depending on where you are, right? There's in Ashburn, Virginia, where we talk about it, there's a lot of community in that area now because, which is ironic it has grown substantially because of the data centers there. So while the community is frustrated about the fact all these data centers are being built, it's also like, well, you know, this this area has grown significantly just due to the quantity of people who come through here on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, I used to go there 
every other week in like 2018. And it was just because the amount of projects we had going on there. Um, so that's number one. Number two is the noise. And um, I will say there's some validity there. There's also some, Ashburn in particular has a little bit of a, a unique situation just due to the quantity of them in the area that it is, right? So, um, you know, typically they're not really all that much louder than if you live next to a highway. But because of the quantity in a certain area, there's kind of this perception of like, well, you're just building another our loud facility. Um, there are a number of vendors who are working towards solutions to reduce that just because we do know that this is going to be a, an issue moving forward. And now that the community has already kind of caught on to it and they have issues with it, it has to be addressed whether or not there's um, whether or not the decibel rating is actually something that is going to be impactful type of thing. Right. So um, there's a number of, um, of vendors like uh, Park Lane is working on different systems and they can kind of customize their systems around reducing the um, noise that is coming off of your rooftop units type of thing, whether that's an air cool chiller, all that type of things. Um, and then there's also just in general, like there's going to be some level of that that also needs to be applied to generators. In theory, generators are not running 24-7, but when you start to have a density of, of um, data centers all in one area, you are you know doing maintenance on your gens. So does that mean you're doing testing? And does that mean you're running a generator every single day, even though it might just be one of them? It that's becomes a conversation of, okay, what is your what is your plan for this maintenance? And how are you going to mitigate that? problem when you get to the point where you're actually running this facility. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I would think that you mentioned a highway. I would think that many of the systems they use to, to break down highway noise um, when there's neighborhoods nearby would be useful in those situations. You know, the walls and the embankments and things like that would be much more would be useful. But maybe there maybe there's also a property issue and line of sight issue around those things. I don't know. Like, you know, you can't really, build, people think you can build a data center in the middle of the woods and it's not really that easy to do because the power still yeah. has to be carried and stuff like that. Power, the telecom, Fiber, right? yeah, everything <laughs> else, yeah, so. all the things. But yeah, no, you're you're correct. And there's, there's uh, precedent from other things like highways that can be leveraged. The one thing in particular that um, you run into is airflow. So the system needs to take into account airflow because you need to be able to make sure that you don't have a hot pocket on your condensers on the roof and then end up having your mechanical system fail because your condenser overheated type of thing. So there's some level of innovation there that needs to happen and is, is happening in the industry. And they're, especially now that it, that's somewhat of a, it's not brand new, but it's somewhat of a, a um, trend that is gaining traction in the industry. So I think that's going to be something over the next couple of years that you see more and more push towards. Cool. So everybody's quiet all of a sudden. I don't have any more questions. No, I think it's, but I think it's, it's really interesting and helpful and useful for us to talk through yeah. and think oh, yeah. about because I've always been a, um, you know, layer two and higher kind of a person like the physical plant stuff was never anything that I ever dealt with or had a huge interest in but i mean ultimately your data center is one big holistic system and uh it's important to think and understand all those dependencies so i i think it was really interesting i learned a lot yeah 
I have a, another question for you because this is one of the things I always think about from a, um, and it's okay if you don't have an answer, but from a, a sustainability conversation, right? There's only so much that we can do on, from a data center designer, there's only so much we can do to say, okay, we're gonna make this as sustainable as possible because there's, at the end of it, there's always a, a power draw, right? That, that the program or whatever is going in that data center needs. So out of curiosity, I'm assuming that programs are always looking at more efficiency within across the, what you guys do from a connectivity standpoint. Is there also a push for that on the other side of the industry, which is the opposite side for me? Let's put it that way. Yeah, there is. There's there's silicon photonics is one of the big things I was talking about earlier with optical stuff. That's an issue that's coming up and people are looking at um, just going back. We've, we've really trapped ourselves into, into generic general purpose processors right now. And as we run out of Moore's Law, we kind of have to start thinking about specific processors again which would actually help efficiency, but it would, har it would harm load balancing and stuff like that. Where do you put the load in the data center? That becomes a much more complex problem. Um, there are other things going on, but honestly, a lot of it is just that, that it's not just even the network right now. It's just in the, if I put a JavaScript application on top of a VM, on top of a processor, which is sliced out and I'm doing, um, and I'm shifting my registers and I'm shifting my program, I'm shifting namespaces or whatever, doing interrupts and throwing everything on the stack. And I'm doing that constantly. There's a certain amount of power that uses that we've built into an efficiency from just the way we build applications now. And I really don't think that's something that we're looking at very hard at the moment. Well, and I think, you know, as, as you move up the stack, Right. Yeah. I mean, there, there are services, you know, AWS has or Lambda, which is a just, in, you know, a runtime, just in time runtime. And, and Google has Cloud Run. And, and we have all these services where applications now, um, you know, they, they, they fire up the compute, they run their process, and then they shut the compute down. Um, virtualization has allowed us to do that. But we have a few decades of applications that weren't built to work that way, yeah. right? And then there are also latency and, and efficiency and speed challenges that come up when you're doing um, the, those just-in-time runtime systems. So, I, you know, I think, like, the industry is evolving, but, like, we've got a few decades that are built on those old inefficient systems that um, just aren't going away anytime soon. So, uh, yes, but, right? It's, it's, it's like you've got that old gear that's in the data center that runs and, and puts off a ton of heat, but nobody can turn it off. Yep. So, yeah. Well, yeah, I, no, I, 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 I was just going to, I was just going to add my, whenever I've done, done a data center design of any type, almost always, I feel like it's always power is the limiting factor. Like we, we can't do this because they're like, we don't have that much power in that rack anyway. So let's spread it out. And, and you end up, you know, putting in 30 racks where you could have done 10 and it's just like power is too expensive to bring in. So that's the constraint. And you end up putting in tons more hardware uh, because you can't get the density of power that you need. And it's kind of, it, you know, I, it was, it was always like, well, this is going to be a pain to manage. This is going to be costly for us. And we're going to use, end up using more power. Um, and I don't know that, that constraint just always was a theme, uh, for me, for whatever reason. Yeah. And that, that all makes sense. I kind of was assuming it was going to be a similar situation to exactly the, the design side, right. Where, you know, we're up against 
some old facilities who some of the the metrics I was talking about earlier were water consumption. That's just due to a bunch of old data centers at this point, right? And so I do think that the retrofit market is going to be something that you see more and more push towards of either is it abandoning the existing data centers and shifting over to a new one, or is it you know, a combination of the existing retrofits to the existing systems paired with liquid cool to be able to bring that efficiency in is what is what does that look like in the future? And I'm it's gonna be interesting over the next five or so years just with this whole push for AI and, and significantly increase in, in in the demand in the market and how do you pair that with you know all these initiatives that people are trying to look towards of one building out the infrastructure but two also maintaining a sustainable narrative across it. Yeah. Sense. Okay, so Tom, anything else? Nope. Okay. This is great. Sarah, anything else before we wrap up and call it a day? All right. So nope. I'm going to start with Tom. Tom, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search for Tom Ammon. Okay. And Yvonne? Yeah, um, on Twitter at Sharp Network and on LinkedIn, Yvonne Sharp. Okay. And Sarah, how can people find you? your company do you blog do you tweet do you linkedin do you do anything yep so you can find me at linkedin sarah martin at hud there's plenty of sarah martins out there so uh always look for the hud one and then uh to get in contact with any of us at hud just go on the hud.design website i'm based out of the boston office so you can always contact us there and uh love to hear from you yeah great and no blogs or anything right Nope. nope. Okay. Just checking to make sure because we always like to point people at, you know, other sources of information. It's always great to have. All right. And I'm Russ White. You can always find me here at The Hedge on Rule11.tech, on LinkedIn, Twitter, I don't know, wherever. Just poke around. You'll find me. I'm really very difficult to find. Trust me. Um, so so um, anyway, for all of our listeners, thanks for listening to this episode of The Hedge. We appreciate your time and your attention. And Sarah, thanks for coming on. This is a great show. This is a great, a lot of information most people don't hear on a regular basis on the network side. And I think it's really important stuff. So again, thanks for listening. Thanks for joining. And we will catch you next time. Mm -hmm.